Kate here, Saints. You're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Augsburg Confession, Articles 27 through the Conclusion, and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Greeting to the Reader. The Augsburg Confession, Article 27, Monastic Vows. It will be easier to understand what we teach about monastic vows by considering the state of the monasteries and how many things were done every day contrary to canon law. In Augustine's time, they were free associations. Later, when discipline was corrupted, vows were added for the purpose of restoring discipline, as in a carefully planned prison. Gradually, many other regulations were added besides vows. These binding rules were laid upon many before the lawful age, contrary to canon law. Many entered monastic life through ignorance. They were not able to judge their own strength, though they were old enough. They were trapped and compelled to remain, even though some could have been freed by the kind of provision of canon law. This was more the case in convents of women than of monks, although more consideration should have been shown the weaker sex. This rigor displeased many good people before this time, who saw that young men and women were thrown into convents for a living. They saw what unfortunate results came of this procedure, how it created scandals, and what snares were cast upon consciences. They were sad that the authority of canon law in so great a matter was utterly set aside and despised. In addition to all these evil things, a view of vows was added that displeased even the more considerate monks. They taught that monastic vows were equal to baptism. They taught that a monastic life merited forgiveness of sins and justification before God. Yes, they even added that the monastic life not only merited righteousness before God, but even greater merit, since it was said that the monastic life not only kept God's basic law, but also the so-called evangelical councils. So they made people believe that the profession of monasticism was far better than baptism, and that the monastic life was more meritorious than that of rulers, pastors, and others, who serve in their calling according to God's commands, without any man-made services. None of these things can be denied. This is all found in their own books about monasticism. How did all this come about in monasteries? At one time they were schools of theology and other branches of learning, producing pastors and bishops for the benefit of the church. Now it is another thing. It is needless to go over what everyone knows. Before they came together for the sake of learning, now they claim that monasticism is a lifestyle instituted to merit grace and righteousness. They even preach that it is a state of perfection. They put monasticism far above all other kinds of life ordained by God. We have mentioned all these things without hateful exaggeration so that our teacher's doctrine on monasticism may be better understood. 
First, concerning monks who marry, our teachers say that it is lawful for anyone who is not suited for the single life to enter into marriage. Monastic vows cannot destroy what God has commanded and ordained. God's commandment is this, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. It is not just a command given by God. God has created and ordained marriage for those who are not given an exception to natural order by God's special work. This is what is taught according to the text in Genesis 2. It is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, those who obey this command and ordinance of God do not sin. What objection can be raised to this? Let people praise the obligation of a monastic vow as much as they want, but they will never be able to destroy God's commandment by means of a monastic vow. Canon law teaches that superiors can make exceptions to monastic vows, how much less are such monastic vows in force that are contrary to God's commandments. If, in fact, an obligation to a monastic vow could never be changed for any reason, the Roman popes could never have granted exceptions to the vows, for it is not lawful for someone to make an exception to what is truly from God. The Roman pontiffs have wisely judged that mercy is to be observed in these monastic obligations. That is why we read that many times they have made special arrangements and exceptions with monastic vows. The case of the king of Aragon, who was called back from the monastery, is well known, and there are also examples in our own times. In the second place, why do our adversaries exaggerate the obligation or effect of a vow, when at the same time they do not have anything to say about the nature of the vow itself? A vow should be something that is possible. It should be a decision that is made freely and after careful deliberation. We all know how possible perpetual chastity actually is in reality, and just how few people actually do take this vow freely and deliberately. Young women and men, before they are able to make their own decision about this, are persuaded and sometimes even forced to take the vow of chastity. Therefore, it is not fair to insist so rigorously on the obligation. Everyone knows that taking a vow that is not made freely and deliberately is against the very nature of a true vow. Most canonical laws overturn vows made before the age of 15. Before that age, a person does not seem able to make a wise judgment and to decide to make a lifelong commitment like this. There is another canon law that adds even more years to this limit, showing that the vow of chastity should not be made before the age of 18. So which of these two canon laws should we follow? Most people leaving the monastery have a valid excuse since they took their vows before they were 15 or 18. Finally, even though it might be possible to condemn a person who breaks a vow, it is not followed that it is right to dissolve a person's marriage. Augustine denies that they ought to be dissolved. Augustine's authority should not be taken lightly, even though some wish to do so today. Although it appears that God's commandment about marriage delivers many from their vows, our teachers introduce another argument about vows to show that they are void. Every service of God established and chosen by people to merit justification and grace without God's commandment is wicked. For Christ says in Matthew 15, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul teaches everywhere that righteousness is not to be sought in self-chosen practices and acts of worship devised by people. 
Righteousness comes by faith to those who believe that they are received by God into grace for Christ's sake. It is clear for all to see that the monks have taught that services made up by people make satisfaction for sins and merit grace and justification. What else is this than detracting from Christ's glory and hiding and denying the righteousness that comes through faith? Therefore, it follows that monastic vows which have been widely taken are wicked services of God and consequently are void. For a wicked vow taken against God's commandment is not valid, for, as the canon says, no vow ought to bind people to wickedness. Paul says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Therefore, anyone wanting to be justified by his vows makes Christ useless and falls from grace. Anyone who tries to connect justification to monastic vows bases his justification on his own works, which properly belongs to Christ's glory. It cannot be denied that the monks have taught that they were justified and merited forgiveness of sins by means of their vows and observances. Indeed, they even invented greater absurdities, saying that they could give others a share in their works. If anyone wanted to make more of this point, to make our opponents look even worse, even more things could be mentioned, things that even the monks are ashamed of now. And on top of all of this, the monks persuaded people that the services that they invented were a state of Christian perfection. What else is this other than assigning our justification to works? It is no light offense in the church to set before the people a service invented by people without God's commandment and then to teach them that such service justifies. For the righteousness of faith, which ought to be the highest teaching in the church, is hidden when these wonderful and angelic forms of worship, with their show of poverty, humility, and celibacy, are put in front of the people. God's precepts and God's true service are hidden when people hear that only monks are in a state of perfection. True Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart, to have great faith, and to trust that for Christ's sake we have a God who has been reconciled. It means to ask for and expect from God his help in all things with confident assurance that we are to live according to our calling in life, being diligent in outward good works, serving in our calling. This is where true perfection and true service of God is to be found. It does not consist in celibacy or in begging or in degrading clothes, the people come up with all sorts of harmful opinions based on their false praise of monastic life. They hear celibacy praised without measure and feel guilty about living in marriage. They hear that only beggars are perfect, and so they keep their possessions and do business with guilty consciences. They hear that it is an even higher work, a gospel counsel, not to seek revenge. So some in private life are not afraid to take revenge, for they hear that it is but a counsel and not a commandment. Others come to the conclusion that a Christian cannot rightly hold a civil office or be a ruler. There are on record examples of men who hid themselves in monasteries because they wanted to forsake marriage and participation in society. They called this fleeing from the world and said they were seeking a kind of life that would be more pleasing to God. They did not realize that God ought to be served according to the commandments that he himself has given, not in commandments made up by people. Only a life that has God's commandment is good and perfect. It is necessary to teach the people about these things. 
Before our times, Gerson rebukes the monk's error about perfection. He testifies that, in his day, it was a new saying that the monastic life is a state of perfection. So in many, wicked opinions are inherent in monastic vows, that they justify, that they cause Christian perfection, that they make it possible to keep the counsels and commandments, that they are works over and above God's commandments. All these things are false and empty. They make monastic vows null and void. Article 28. Church Authority. There has been great controversy about the power of the bishops, in which some have terribly confused the power of the church with the power of the state. This confusion has produced great war and riot. All the while, the popes claiming the power of the keys have instituted new services and burdened consciences with church discipline and excommunication. But they have also tried to transfer the kingdom of this world to the church by taking the empire away from the emperor. Learned and godly people have condemned these errors in the church for a long time. Therefore, our teachers, in order to convert people's consciences, were constrained to show the difference between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. They taught that both of them are to be held in reverence and honor as God's chief blessings on earth because they have God's command. Our teacher's position is this. The authority of the keys, or the authority of the bishops, according to the gospel, is a power or commandment of God to preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, to administer sacraments. Christ sends out his apostles with this command, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And in Mark 16, Christ says, Go, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This authority is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments, either to many or to individuals, according to their calling. In this way are given not only bodily but also eternal things, eternal righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. These things cannot reach us except by the ministry of the Word and the sacraments. As Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. Therefore, the church has the authority to grant eternal things and exercises this authority only by the ministry of the Word. So it does not interfere with civil government any more than the art of singing interferes with civil government. For civil government deals with other things than the gospel does. Civil rulers do not defend minds but bodies and bodily things against obvious injuries. They restrain people with the sword and physical punishment in order to preserve civil justice and peace. Therefore, the church's authority and the state's authority must not be confused. The church's authority has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. Let it not break into the office of another. Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world to itself. Let it not abolish the laws of civil rulers. Let it not abolish lawful obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments about civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not dictate laws to civil authorities about the form of society. As Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. Also, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Paul also says, our citizenship is in heaven. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
This is how our teachers distinguish between the duties of these two authorities. They command that both be honored and acknowledged as God's gifts and blessings. If bishops have any authority of the state, this is not because they are bishops. In other words, it is not by the gospel's commission. It is an authority that they have received from kings and emperors for the purpose of administering the civil affairs of what belongs to them in society. This is another office, not the ministry of the gospel. Therefore, when a question arises about the bishop's jurisdiction, civil authority must be distinguished from the church's jurisdiction. Again, the only authority that belongs to the bishops is what they have according to the gospel, or by divine right, as they say. For they have been given the ministry of the word and sacraments. They have no other authority according to the gospel than the authority to forgive sins, to judge doctrine, to reject doctrines contrary to the gospel, and to exclude from the communion of the church wicked people whose wickedness is known. They cannot exclude people with human force, but simply by the word. According to this gospel authority, as a matter of necessity, by divine right, congregations must obey them. For Luke 10 says, The one who hears you hears me. But when they teach or establish anything against the gospel, then the congregations are forbidden by God's command to obey them. Beware of false prophets. Matthew 7. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The authority that the Lord has given for me for building up and not for tearing down. 2 Corinthians 13. The canonical laws also command this. And Augustine writes, Neither must we submit to Catholic bishops if they choose to err or hold anything contrary to the canonical scriptures of God. If the bishops have any other authority or jurisdiction in hearing and judging certain cases, as of matrimony or of tithes, they have this authority only by human right. If the bishops do not carry out their duties in these areas, the princes are bound, even if they do not want to, to dispense justice to their subjects in order to maintain peace. There is also a dispute about whether or not bishops or pastors have the right to introduce ceremonies in the church and to make laws about meats, holy days, and grades, that is, orders of ministers, and so on. Those who say that the bishops do have this right refer to this testimony of Christ in John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. They also refer to the example of the apostles who commanded that Christians abstain from blood and from things strangled. They refer to the Sabbath day as having been changed into the Lord's day, contrary to the Decalogue, as they understand it. In fact, they make more of the supposed change of the Sabbath day than any other example they can think of. They say that the church's authority is so great, it has even done away with one of the Ten Commandments. But on this question, for our part, as we have shown earlier, we teach that bishops have no authority to decree anything against the gospel. The canonical laws teach the same thing. It is against Scripture to establish or require the observance of any traditions for the purpose of making satisfaction for sins, or to merit grace and righteousness. When we try to merit justification by observing such things, we cause great harm to the glory of Christ's merit. It is quite clear that by such beliefs, 
traditions have almost multiplied to an infinite degree in the church, while at the same time, the doctrine about faith and the righteousness through faith has been suppressed. Gradually, more holy days were made, fasts appointed, new ceremonies and services in honor of saints instituted. Those responsible for such things thought that by these works they were meriting grace. So the penitential canons increased. We still see some traces of this in the satisfactions. Those who establish such traditions are acting contrary to God's command when they locate sin in foods, days, and similar things. They burden the church with bondage to the law, as if there needs to be something similar to the services commanded in Leviticus in order to merit justification. They say that Christ has committed the arrangement of such services to the apostles and bishops. They have written about the law of Moses in such a way that the popes have been misled to some degree. This is how they have burdened the church by making it a mortal sin, even if nobody else is offended, to do manual labor on holy days or to skip the canonical hours, or that certain foods dirty the conscience, or that fasting is a work that appeases God. Or they say that, in a reserved case, sin can only be forgiven by the person who reserved the case, even though canon law speaks only of reserving the ecclesiastical penalty, not the guilt. Who has given the bishops the right to lay these traditions on the church by which they snare consciences? In Acts 15, Peter forbids us from putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, the authority given to him was for edification, not for destruction. Why do the adversaries increase sins with their traditions? There are clear testimonies that forbid creating traditions in such a way so as to suggest that they merit grace or are necessary to salvation. Paul says in Colossians 2, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And later, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Colossians 2. Also in Titus 1, he openly forbids traditions with these words, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In Matthew 15, Christ says of those who require traditions, let them alone, they are blind guides. In verse 13, he rejects such services. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. If bishops have the right to burden churches with infinite traditions and to snare consciences, why does Scripture so often forbid making and listening to traditions? Why does it call them teachings of demons? Did the Holy Spirit warn of these things in vain? Therefore, ordinances instituted as though they are necessary, or with the view that they merit grace, are contrary to the gospel. Therefore, it follows that it is not lawful for any bishop to institute and require such services. It is necessary that the doctrine of Christian freedom be preserved in the churches. In other words, the bondage of the law is not necessary in order to be justified, as it is written in the epistle to the Galatians. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It is necessary for the chief article of the gospel to be preserved, 
namely that we obtain grace freely by faith in Christ and not by certain observances or acts of worship devised by people. What then are we to think of the Sunday rites and similar things in God's house? We answer that it is lawful for bishops or pastors to make ordinances so that things will be done orderly in the church, but not to teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction for sins. Consciences are not bound to regard them as necessary services and to think that it is a sin to break them without offense to others. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul concludes that women should cover their heads in the congregation, and in 1 Corinthians 14, that interpreters be heard in order in the church, and so on. It is proper that the churches keep such ordinances for the sake of love and tranquility, to avoid giving offense to another, so that all things be done in the churches in order and without confusion. It is proper to keep such ordinances just so long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary to salvation, or to regard it as sin if they are changed without offending others. For instance, no one will say that a woman sins who goes out in public with her head uncovered, as long as no offense is given. This kind of ordinance in the church is observing the Lord's Day, Easter, Pentecost, and similar holy days and rites. It is a great error for anyone to think that it is by the authority of the church that we observe the Lord's Day as something necessary instead of the Sabbath day. Scripture itself has abolished the Sabbath day. It teaches that since the gospel has been revealed, all the ceremonies of Moses can be omitted. Yet, because it was necessary to appoint a certain day for the people to know when they ought to come together, it appears that the church designated the Lord's Day for this purpose. This day seems to have been chosen all the more for this additional reason, so that people might have an example of Christian freedom and might know that keeping neither the Sabbath nor any other day is necessary. There are monstrous debates about changing the law, ceremonies of the new law, and changing the Sabbath day. They have all sprung from the false belief that in the church there must be something similar to the services set forth in Leviticus, and that Christ had commissioned the apostles and bishops to come up with new ceremonies necessary for salvation. These errors crept into the church when the righteousness that comes through faith was not taught clearly enough. Some debate whether or not keeping the Lord's day is not a divine right but similar to it. They prescribe the extent to which it is lawful to work on holy days. What else are such disputes except traps for the conscience? Even when they try to modify the traditions, nobody will understand the modifications as long as the opinion remains that these traditions are necessary and must remain. There, the righteousness of faith and Christian freedom is not known. In Acts 15, the apostles commanded to abstain from blood. Who observes this now? Those who choose to eat blood do not sin. For not even the apostles themselves wanted to burden consciences with bondage to traditions. They forbid the eating of the blood for a time to avoid giving offense. For in this decree we must always keep in mind what the aim of the gospel is. Scarcely any canon laws are kept with exactness. From day to day many go out of use, even among those who are the most zealous advocates of traditions. In order to treat the conscience properly, we must realize that canon laws are to be kept without regarding them as necessary. No harm is done to the conscience, even though traditions may go out of use. The bishops might easily retain the legitimate obedience of the people, 
if they would not insist on the observance of traditions that cannot be kept with a good conscience. Instead, they command celibacy and accept no preachers unless they swear that they will not teach the gospel's pure doctrine. The churches are not asking the bishops to restore concord at the expense of their honor, even though it would be proper for good pastors to do this. They ask only that the bishops release unjust burdens that are new and have been received contrary to the custom of the universal church. It may be that in the beginning there were plausible reasons for some of these ordinances, but they are not adapted to later times. It is also clear that some were adopted through erroneous ideas. Therefore, it would be in keeping with the Pope's mercy to change them now. Such a modification does not shake the Church's unity. Many human traditions have been changed over time, as the canons themselves show. But if it is impossible for the adversaries to change those traditions, which they say is sinful to change, we must follow the apostolic rule which commands us to obey God rather than men. In 1 Peter 5.3, Peter forbids the bishops to be lords and rule over the churches. It is not our intention to take oversight away from the bishops. We ask only this one thing, that they allow the gospel to be taught purely, and that they relax a few observances that they claim it is sinful to change. If they will not give anything up, it is for them to decide how they will give an account to God for causing schism by their stubbornness. Conclusion These are the chief articles that seem to be in controversy. We could have mentioned more abuses, but we have set forth only the chief points in order to avoid making this confession too long. From these chief points, the rest may be easily judged. There have been, for example, great complaints about indulgences, pilgrimages, and the abuse of excommunication. Our parishes have been troubled in many ways by dealers in indulgences. There were endless arguments between the pastors and the monks about who has the right in parishes to hear confessions, do funerals, give sermons on extraordinary occasions, and innumerable other things. We have passed over such issues so that the chief points in this matter, briefly set forth, might be more easily understood. Nothing has been said or brought up for the rebuke of anyone. We have mentioned only those things we thought it necessary to talk about, so that it would be understood that in doctrine and ceremonies we have received nothing contrary to Scripture or the Church Universal. It is clear that we have been very careful to make sure no new ungodly doctrine creeps into our churches. We present these articles in accordance with your Imperial Majesty's edict, in order to show our confession and let people see a summary of our teacher's doctrine. If there is anything that anyone might desire in this confession, we are ready, God willing, to present more through information according to the Scriptures. Your Imperial Majesty's Faithful Subjects John, Duke of Saxony, Elector George, Margrave of Brandenburg Ernest, Duke of Lunenburg Philip, Landgrave of Hesse John Frederick, Duke of Saxony Francis, Duke of Lunenburg Wolfgang, Prince of Anhalt Senate and Magistry of Nuremberg Senate of Rutligen The Apology of the Augsburg Confession Philip Melanchthon presents his greeting to the reader.
After our prince's confession was read publicly, certain theologians and monks prepared a confutation. His imperial majesty had it read in the assembly of the princes. Then he demanded that the princes agree with it. Our princes heard that many articles were not approved, which they could not abandon without offense to conscience. Therefore, they asked for a copy of the confutation so that they could see what the adversaries condemned and refute their arguments. In such an important matter of religion and the instruction of consciences, they thought that the adversaries would share their writing without any hesitation. But our princes could only get a copy under the most dangerous conditions, which were impossible for them to accept. Negotiations for peace were begun. It was clear that our princes avoided no burden, however grievous, that could be borne without offense to conscience. But the adversary stubbornly demanded that we approve certain clear abuses and errors. Since we could not do this, his imperial majesty again demanded that our princes agree with the confutation. Our princes refused to do so. For in a matter of religion, how could our princes agree with a writing they had not seen, especially since they had heard some articles condemned. It was impossible for them, without grievous sin, to approve the adversary's opinions. They commanded me and some others to prepare an apology for the confession. This would be set forth for his imperial majesty for the reasons why we could not receive the confutation. The adversary's objections would also be refuted. During the reading of the confutation, some of us had taken down the chief points of the topics and arguments. The princes offered this defense to his imperial majesty when they left Augsburg, so that he would know that we were hindered from approving the confutation by the greatest and most important reasons. But his imperial majesty did not receive the offered writing. Afterward, a decree was published in which the adversaries boast that they have refuted our confession from the scriptures. Reader, you now have our apology. From it you will understand not only what the adversary said about our confession, for we have reported in good faith, but also that, contrary to the clear scripture of the Holy Spirit, they condemned several articles. That is how far they are from overthrowing our statements by means of the scriptures. Originally we drew up the apology after consulting with others, yet as it pleased through the press, I made some additions. That is why I give my name, so that no one can complain that the book has been published anonymously. In these controversies, as far as I was able at all, it has always been my custom to keep the traditional form of doctrine. I did this so that at some time unity could be reached more readily. I am not departing far from this custom now, even though I could justly lead people today even further away from the opinions of the adversaries. The adversaries are dealing with these issues in a way that shows they are seeking neither truth nor concord, but to drain our blood. I have written with the greatest moderation possible. If any expression appears too severe, I must say that I am arguing with the theologians and monks who wrote the confutation, not with the emperor or the princes, whom I hold in due esteem. I recently saw the confutation and noticed how cunningly and slanderously it was written, so that on some points it could deceive even the cautious. Yet I did not discuss all their sophistries, for it would be an endless task. Instead, I deal with the chief arguments, 
so that all nations will have a clear testimony from us that we hold the gospel of Christ correctly and piously. Disagreement does not delight us, neither are we indifferent to our danger. We readily understand the extent of it when we see how inflamed our adversaries are by bitterness and hatred. Yet we cannot abandon truth that is clear and necessary for the church. That is why we believe that troubles and dangers for Christ's glory and the church's good should be endured. We are confident that God approves our faithfulness to duty. We hope that the judgment of future generations about us will be more just. It is undeniable that many topics of Christian doctrine, whose place in the church is more important, have been brought to view and explained by our theologians. We are not inclined to repeat here under what sort of opinions and how dangerously these topics used to lay buried in the writings of the monks, canonists, and sophistic theologians. We have the public testimony of many good men who give thanks to God for this great blessing. Our confession teaches many necessary things better than any of our adversaries' books. We will commend our cause to Christ, who will someday judge these controversies. We beg him to look upon the afflicted and scattered churches and to bring them back to godly and continuous harmony. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.